Thanks for listening to Open Doors Live with your hosts, Mike Gore and James Kazina. Because of your support, we're able to bring the persecuted church to life. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au. Here's today's episode. here in northern Iraq, standing here inside a church that was founded in AD 35. It's the oldest church in Iraq. Beautiful, haunting. And I've come to find out what life is like for believers in this nation. And I'm here with Beth, the producer of the Open Doors Live podcast. I thought it might be a good opportunity as we stand in this historic and significant church to maybe just ask you some questions about the last 48 hours. I have no doubts in my mind that you will leave here a different person than which you arrived. Hi, my name is Beth, and I'm the producer of the Open Doors Live podcast. Today we're doing something a little bit different. This episode is brought to you from the field. A few weeks ago, Mike and I, along with the team, traveled to Iraq to see the way the church is being rebuilt after ISIS. I hadn't really visited the persecuted church in country before. It was difficult even telling my family I was going to Iraq, a place that often instills fear and images of war, suffering, and an insurmountable refugee crisis. So is that what we would find? Or would we discover something more? Jesus, he didn't promise us easy life. God always uses things to shame us. It's hardships what makes me stronger. Raising my eyes up and I say, God, this is your hand. They were not able to take our faith, which is in our heart. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. You know, God was just bringing me to this point, maybe to serve others. In today's episode, we're taking you with us to see what life is like for the persecuted church in Iraq. But before we jump into some of the stories, I thought it would be a good idea to set the scene and give you a bit of context. Mike, Iraq is a country that has long been governed by war. On the World Watch List, which is a report released annually from Open Doors and provides an indexed ranking of the 50 most difficult countries to be a Christian, Iraq is actually ranked number eight. What would you say life is like for Christians living in Iraq? Hello, Beth, and everybody listening to the Open Doors Live podcast. It's great to be back with you. We're recording today in a wet and stormy Sydney, so you may hear rolls of thunder in the background and rain, uh, but they're the joys of life recording in the middle of a storm. Beth, when I talk about Iraq, I often talk about it being, or the best way of describing it, being the tale of two countries. You see, on one hand, Iraq, it feels safe, it feels comfortable. I mean, it's not dissimilar to Sydney. It's a beautiful country. But then on the other hand, only in a split second, it can feel volatile, it can feel dangerous. If you take a moment to look around you and, and really absorb what you're seeing, there's military, there's guns. There's presence, there's signs of war everywhere. But there's also signs of life. People going to cafes, coffee shops, movies, cinemas, shopping centres, all of the things that you'd associate with comfort and normality in life. It's a tale of two countries. And for me, that's one of the things that makes it so alluring and so beautiful, is that so much of the media will tell you it's a country to be avoided at all costs. 
But the moment you land, it's full of life, vibrancy, people and beauty. And, sadly at times, it's full of violence and war. The tale of two countries. I think it's important to keep in mind that the nation of Iraq as well is governed by a mix of both civil law as well as Sharia law. Under Sharia law, if a Muslim decides they want to convert to Christianity, well, they're technically breaking the law and the penalty for that is death. Christians in Iraq also have to be careful of what they say in public. Blasphemy laws make evangelizing extremely difficult. Even just saying Jesus is the Son of God, all the one true God, could land you in jail. Add to that the constant threat of Islamic extremism. One minute is ISIS, or Daesh, as they call it. The next week, it's another extremist group, and the week after that, another group. Every believer we met had already suffered the loss of a business, homes, or loved ones because of their faith. But when we were talking with one of our friends there, Shlama, who you will hear in an interview later in this episode, she tells us that despite the risks she is still passionate about sharing the gospel and told us that her friends no longer stand with her when she's in public because they're terrified that she will evangelize. There was one church we visited that had a particularly harrowing story. When we were there, the father told us about his two best friends who ran a church in Baghdad. In 2010, on a Sunday morning, Islamic extremists attacked the church. They had guns and suicide vests strapped to their bodies. One priest ran to the entrance, begging the extremists not to harm their congregation, and he was the first to die. When the extremists made their way into the church, another priest, clutching a crucifix, was shot. Some worshippers were taken hostage, whilst others barricaded themselves in the back room. The extremists eventually detonated their explosive vests, and in total, 58 people were killed. At the time, it was the worst Christian massacre Iraq had seen since 2003. When the father finished telling us his story, he pointed to two candle stands on either side of the altar at the front of his church. He had recovered them from his friend's church in Baghdad. This was from Daesh? It was Al-Qaeda at that time. In 2010, when they attacked the church in Baghdad, the Colossated in Najat, and this was one of the uh, big events that happened and the make most Christian to leave also okay. at that time. And, and what's on the bottom, is that? It's, it's the blood of the people who have been died, because many people, Christian have been died from and, and the, yes. yeah, from attack. Wow. Two of the priests who died in this attack were this father's closest friends during seminary school, and they lost their lives defending the congregation. In case you didn't get it, the two candlestands on either side of the altar were covered in the blood of the martyrs from the church attack in Baghdad. The father told us how it was likely to be the blood of his two friends. What I think is even more profound is the fact that the father refused to clean the candlestands. The father made it very clear to us that the blood was something they needed to remember, not just for the sake of the loved ones they've lost, but because this is what they are willing to sacrifice for their gospel in this nation. Okay. We're standing next to a mountain stream in rural Iraq. Some of our local partners are hoping to use for a hydroelectric generator. You can hear them enthusiastically discussing the suitability of the project behind me. The electricity from this generator wouldn't just power one home, but the entire village and help people rebuild their lives and begin working again. In Iraq, one of the biggest challenges people face is job availability. There used to be 1.5 million Christians in Iraq, 
and now there are only 300,000. This is a result of emigration and war, but the church is doing its best to encourage people to stay by allowing them to earn a living and remain here in Iraq. You know, Beth, so often we talk about the significance of the work of Open Doors. You see, we strengthen and support the persecuted church. What does that even look like? You see, one of the things I love about the nation of Iraq is that I've been able to walk with it through the last five or six years. This is my third trip to Iraq. You see, on the first trip we arrived and ISIS had just torn the place up. People were arriving in countless thousands on foot into Erbil. They were sleeping in streets, outside, in the courtyards of churches, in dilapidated buildings. And as an organisation and through our partners, our focus was on first response. We wanted to feed people, give people shelter and protection. 18 months later I came back and the helplessness and the hopelessness of the situation of the IDP crisis, the refugee crisis, had really begun to sink in. People had been in these camps now for two years and listening to them speak, issues of mental health, intimacy in marriage, education for children, all of these things started to play a role. And so, as an organisation and through our partners, the focus shifted and we began to think about mental health, education, marriages, because as we work with them, again, it's, it's a way of strengthening and supporting the persecuted church. And now you jump forward another couple of years and I'm back again. And this time, what is profound is yet again the ministry has shifted. As I sit and talk to partners here, they tell us how one of the greatest links to keeping the church alive in Iraq is actually job provision and micro loans. I remember I push into that and ask them, well, why? And they say, well, at the moment, people look for a reason to leave our nation. We want to give them a reason to stay. And what I love is yet another example of how the 60 years legacy of this ministry, it's not just like a one-trick, set-and-forget recipe we use in strengthening the church. We walk with them. We evolve with their needs. We ask the church, what is the key way of helping the church remain in your nation? It's gone from feeding and shelter to mental health, counselling, trauma, education, families, and now shifted again to business, to micro-business loans, and to job provision. And for me, that's one of the most exciting and beautiful things about Open Doors as an organisation and the partners we choose to work with. One of those people doing this incredible work is a woman called Shlama. She's become a dear friend of mine over the years, And this trip, I had the privilege of sitting down with her and asking her about her faith. Sorry about all the background noise. We recorded it in her office. It was a hive of activity, people running here, there and everywhere. But I hope it's an encouragement to you. We're recording soon? Okay. Well, I'm sitting here in Kurdistan with a very, very good friend of mine, Shlama, which means peace. And what I thought I'd do is, in Australia, we have what's called a podcast, and it is talking about the persecuted church is talking about faith. We call it an all-in-one devotional whereby we share stories of faith, uh, scriptures and encouragements. And I really thought you were just the perfect person to invite onto the podcast because I know your story and I know your passion, but so many people don't. So I thought I might start by asking a couple of questions around faith. 
on your journey to faith. Did you grow up in Kurdistan? Yes, uh, I grew up, I, I born in Nenevetlin, but I grew up in Kurdistan. Have you always been a Christian? Uh, I, I grew up in, I born in a Christian family, but a follower of Jesus in, in, 90, in 97. 1997, okay. And now, in that time, that was living under Saddam? It was under Saddam, but, uh, uh, but, but Kurdistan at the time was separate from his authority. Were you relatively free to be a Christian in Kurdistan? There was almost uh, no government here, it was very weak, uh, and there was many Islamic movements. Uh, growing. Al-Qaeda was very strong in, in, in Kurdistan and they starting persecuted Christian. Migration was actually starting in Kurdistan uh, because they were bombing houses of, of, the, of the Christian. So we were sleeping in that fear and wake up also in, in the same, same fear. Growing up on the Nineveh Plain and you know the mighty Tigris River runs through this beautiful country, you know it is a deeply biblical history. I mean, you have Jonah and the whale from the Nineveh plane. Then you have the Tigris, which is mentioned right throughout the Bible. And so the history of this part of the world, this region, the Middle East, is so deeply rooted in Christianity. But persecution has long been an issue. So it's not something that's new, is it? ISIS, for instance, which I'm sure many of our listeners will know about, persecution and ISIS isn't a new thing. It was Al-Qaeda before them, and then before them it was other people. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Like, uh, as a Christian, uh, we have been passed through the many persecuted, and we never feel we are not persecuted. We are original people of this land, and to be like, we are the people of the Bible and the biblical areas, but always we have been, uh, been like third class in, in this in, in this region and persecuted it is not something new it's like we grow up with it mm. do you find that persecution makes the church stronger or it makes the church weaker actually it is make it more strong that's what happened in the isis it show how strong the christian became is it isis he was able to destroy our houses was able to uh, take our job but whether they were not able to take our faith which is in our heart which no one could take it and this is will keep for for forever now if we go from looking i guess at the religious background to this nation and start talking more about your personal faith what is it that you love most about jesus i love jesus because always he is the uh, the mercy and justice there is no ending for his justice so this is what really made me to be a, a follower of him in the last sort of five years or so that i've known you you've walked through a lot with the rise of isis you've walked through many countless hundreds of thousands of IDPs, internally displaced people coming into your region. What have you learnt about suffering and faith in that time? I have been being reminded by the verse from the Bible, like Jesus, he didn't promise us easy life. He said, in the end of this life, you will be persecuted, but uh, trust that I overcome on the world. To be, to be Christian, that means you every day you are carrying your cross. Do you think that uh, suffering is the end of what God has planned for Iraq or it's the beginning? How do you look at suffering? 
I always thinking suffering is the beginning of the new things that God wanted to start it in your life. He want to make you strong and to make you ready to the day that he will come again. I think for me personally that's a really profound viewpoint because so often in the west it's the opposite. We look at suffering as something that doesn't have hope, it doesn't have a future whereas here in this nation you tell us that suffering is almost the beginning of the next phase. And I remember even just three days ago, you and I were standing in a church that was founded in or around AD 35 and realising that even from that almost 2,000 year history of that church alone, it's not the story of the end of the church in Iraq, it's the story of the future. This nation isn't defined by ISIS or the past, it's defined by the future. And as you said just a moment ago, the disappointment and the suffering, they're the beginning of the next chapter of the church in this nation. And so what do you believe is the future? What, what are you most hopeful for, for the future of the church in this nation? You know, uh, one time I was uh, thinking about all these things, and actually when I came to know Jesus, and who, as I said, I grew up in a Christian family, uh, but uh, the difficulties, uh, the suffering, who make me to know Jesus, I was not, when I was living my life in an easy way, Jesus was not in my life. But when I passed in that difficulty, for this reason, it was a new starting in my, uh, in my, in my life. It's home, it's where Jesus is. Do you have a message of encouragement to the Australian church or to the people listening to this podcast? They are all over the world. Uh, an encouragement around faith. What would you say if you had your opportunity to speak to us about following Jesus? Uh, I will use the opportunity that you have, uh, the freedom that you are living in, in this freedom country. Our people, they wishing to have this, to practice their faith and their Jesus and their cross. So uh, use the time. Oh, this is not late. You see, what I love is that I hope that the listeners to this podcast realise that there is a beautiful thing happening all over the world, whether it's the Middle East, Asia. Jesus is building his church. And more than that, he's using obedient and courageous people like you to be part of it. And so it is a great encouragement and more than that, a great privilege to have sat with you, to have walked with you over the last week and to hear your passion for this nation. And I remember one of the first times we met, probably 2015, I remember I said to you, what is your vision for this nation? And you sort of smiled and said, oh, it's a little bit embarrassing. And, and I said, no, please tell me. And you said, well, I believe that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord in this nation. Yeah, still it's my vision and we are working in that because, uh, and also I found that the, uh, uh, among all these things, if you want really to show Jesus in your life, then you have to be weak and then his grace and his power will show. Otherwise you feel that you, uh, you are the, it's your ability or your, uh, uh, your strength that you are doing it. But he showed totally, when you are not able to do anything, then uh, 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 you see my, my power and my, and my name will be glory. But, and I have been seen all this time in that case. And I'm very proud, like when Paul, I could say the same what Paul said, when I'm weak, then I am strong. Well... Thank you so much for giving us your time today. I want to encourage you and say that you are truly an inspiration to me and it is an honour to call you my friend. We get to do ministry together and I, and along with everyone else listening to this podcast, uh, want to say that we hope the church and the future of it in this nation is founded in Jesus, it's for Jesus, and the future is brighter than the past. Thanks.
And I would uh, also uh, want to thank everyone who ha helped the brother and sister in, uh, in the church in the Iraq and they keep praying for them and keep lift them in your prayers. So that I thank you so much for all the support and all the love that you bring it with you. What an incredible woman of faith. You know, the thing I love about Shlama is she's about five feet tall. She's one of the most energetic people I have ever met, but she is also one of the most courageous believers I've ever had the privilege of meeting. Speaking of heroes of the faith, I want to take you to a place in Iraq I've been wanting to go to for years. It's on the top of a mountain overlooking the Nineveh Plains. You can see Mosul in the distance, about 20 kilometers away, and as we climb our way up the windy path, I can't help but think about the decades of war and conflict this monastery has seen. This monastery was built in the 4th century for a man called Matthew, fleeing from persecution. In the 13th century, the leader of the Mongol army, the grandson of Genghis Khan, came there and received healing, ultimately saving the monastery from genocide. And only a few years ago, the Islamic State captured Mosul and ultimately most of the Nineveh Plain and made their way right up to the town which sits at the foot of the hill leading to this monastery. The thing that stands out for me with this monastery is that in 2014, when ISIS took Mosul, I remember hearing a story about a bishop and some Christian monks living in this monastery. The thought of ISIS coming scared them and terrified them so much that they decided to leave and walk to a displacement camp. They realised that life in this camp was worse than the prospect of death. And so the bishop and the monks, together, made the decision to return to the monastery. When they returned to the monastery, the congregational members said to the bishop, Bishop, what will happen when ISIS comes? And he says, well, you, they'll shoot on the spot. But me, they'll burn me alive. And I'd be happy to die for Jesus. It's stories like this of faith in the face of danger that both encourage and terrify me. For me, it was also a really surreal experience because I couldn't believe I was meeting such heroes of the faith. And when we told the bishop that he was a hero to so many believers around the world, he just looked at us and said, he wasn't the hero, he was a zero. Um, and I think that humility just perfectly captured the way they were so all about serving God before themselves. And it was incredibly inspiring and later that day, we were actually driving through a Syrian refugee camp and I spotted this girl walking on the side of the road. Mike, you asked me, why isn't that girl on the side of the road you? Why don't you live in that refugee camp? In fact, why are you on this bus driving through right now? It must be for a purpose bigger than just returning home to be a lukewarm Christian. And I think that really stumped me because... When we asked believers in, in Iraq what they thought a lukewarm Christian was, they could respond in an instant. Many of them said it was someone who only cared about themselves, someone who wanted a nice, easy life, 
someone who was more concerned with their own safety than with sharing the gospel with others. And every time somebody spoke about a lukewarm Christian in Iraq, I was scared because it felt like they were describing me. I want to take a moment to interrupt this podcast and share with you a special announcement from last month's episode. In the last episode about the strong, suffering church in India, we decided to give away some beautiful prints and stories from India for you to hang in your home, and all you had to do was go and rate and review the podcast. I'm excited to announce Nerida Kate, Mwado, and Linda, you have all won a print. If you could email our producer Beth at bethanyr at od.org, she will get those prints sent out to you straight away. But for now, let's jump back into the episode because I decided to ask Beth a couple of questions as we stood in the first church ever built in Iraq. Tell me, what, what stood out to you? What were your first impressions of this country? I think for me when I arrived, one of the first things that struck me was the reverence that people have for the cross. Um, we're here during a time known as the celebration of the cross. So a lot of Christian families will have crosses on their balconies and out the front of their homes and on their doors. And so many people wear them around their necks. And even just to get through checkpoints, the cross hanging on the rearview mirror of the car is sort of like people's passports. And I think for me that's something that has struck me the most is everyone's reverence for the cross. You know, it's not a historical object or symbol it's very real and it's very relevant to the way that they live their lives today and it's definitely something that sets them apart from other Kurdish people and and Iraqi people as well so listening back to that audio of us in the oldest church in Iraq founded in AD 35 by doubting Thomas himself Beth do you still feel the same or has your time in Iraq changed the way you see the cross now that you're home Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was over there, I bought a cross necklace before we left. It has the words Son, Father and Holy Spirit written on it in Aramaic, which is the language they believe Jesus spoke. But when I was walking down the aisle on the plane home, you know, it must have been the way the sun was coming through the windows, but it was just hitting the cross and making it shine. And I could see a lot of people staring at it. You know, there was women wearing the hijabs and Islamic leaders, a lot of US military And instinctively, I went to tuck the cross under my shirt. I don't know why I did that. I think, you know, maybe I just didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable. I'm not really sure. But in that moment, I realised this is why I bought it. Because the Christians I met in Iraq would not hide their cross. They were not ashamed of it, and I shouldn't be either. So I think coming home now, I'm learning to be bolder about my faith and unashamed of the cross. Before we finish today's episode, I want to share the story of a young woman we spoke to before we flew out of Iraq. When I met her a couple of years ago, she had just arrived in this city as an IDP, an internally displaced person. She has a powerful story, a story that is so typical of believers in Iraq. 
I was a Muslim for all of my life. Uh, and in uh, 2007, uh, someone threatened us, and we had, we don't know who, and we left to Nilbaplan. We stayed there for almost seven years, and then uh, in, in that period, there was also many attacks. Uh, I was in the second year of college, and there was always this threats, like uh, people threatening us, you are Christians, you are, you are not welcome, maybe throwing papers in the classrooms. And, but uh, after two years, uh, we had a priest always making uh, deals with uh, terrorism just to keep us go to Musa. They would pay every month amount of money, but I guess the area was so poor at that time they couldn't pay. So this is what, what happened, uh, that they, there was a deadline or something. We didn't know about it, actually. Mm -hmm. And we went, like, every day. It was actually for some colleges, graduation day. So the, you see how terrible it was, really. I remember that I didn't know which bus to choose, so uh, the driver, he just pointed at me, and he said, ride this bus with me. Mm -hmm. So I, I still thank God for that person. Um, and when we reached an area between two checkpoints, it was American checkpoint and Iraqi checkpoint. So this area that it is between two checkpoints, imagine American and Iraqi checkpoint. Inside this area, they attack us. Uh, so we were the first bus. Uh, the second, first bus we crossed. The second bus, their windows were shattered. The third bus. Yeah, a lot of people, some of them lost their legs, some of them their eyes, some died, so it was very terrible, yeah. And also three buses after that, they were all injured. And uh, I can remember from my friends, people with their bodies, and most of them they lost their vision because it was, uh, it was raining, so they closed the windows, and uh, there was no rain a period after rain, but that day was raining and everyone was closing them. So when I didn't, we did not realize how big it was, but when we turned, it was very big, very big. But you know, after that, uh, no one gave up. Most of them went back also and continued their college. I continued. You could not stop. Uh, 2014, we were displaced to Erbil. And uh, eventually, we lost everything. Nothing. We had nothing left from our house, not even a picture. Um, but when I came here, uh, it's like uh, God pulled me out of everything and put me in this safe community. So it's like, you know, God was just bringing me to this point maybe to serve others. Most of the things that I lost in my life, God brought uh, double. God, yeah, doubles and doubles of things. Like we did not have anything in our house and now our house is full of stuff. It makes you one of the most inspiring people I know because your passion for Jesus and your willingness to keep going is amazing for all of us around the table, because I know your story, you know, you have gone through a lot and you still remain close to Jesus. And that to us is one of the most encouraging, one of the most inspiring 
things that were very good. Thank you. As I stand inside this church, I'm reminded of the fact that the last 10 years of atrocities in this country at the hands of ISIS, they're not what determine the future of the church in this country. You see, from AD 35 and before that, Jesus has been building his church in this country. This is a story of hope. It's a story of a future that's yet to be written, but it's a story of excitement. It's meeting with believers who say, in many ways, they thank God for ISIS because it's allowed them to come back to realize what is truly valuable to them. And that is a person of Jesus. It's people that tell me that disappointments aren't the end of God's story. They're the beginning of the next chapter. And for me, that's one of the reasons the persecuted church is the most hope-filled thing on the planet. You know, stories of loss, heartbreak and demise. They're stories of growth, rebuilding, new chapters, new beginnings. But ultimately, they're stories of obedience. Obedience for God's call, for God's purpose for his church in this nation. You see, ISIS won't determine the future of the church in Iraq. God will. And he'll do it through obedient believers who passionately and courageously live out their purpose and calling. Thanks for listening to Open Doors Live with your hosts, Mike Gore and James Kazina. Because of your support, we're able to bring the persecuted church to life. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au.